0: Everybody and welcome back to the D program. Today we have the magnificent Uh, Richard D. Wolfe with us. Um, If you've been living under a rock and don't know who he is, then I'll give a short introduction. He is a professor of economics emeritus at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and also a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs of the New School University in New York City. He is the founder of Democracy at Work and host of their nationally syndicated show Economic Update. His latest books are uh, The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself as well as his uh, books Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism. They are all available as ebooks that you can find on www.democracyatwork.info. Of course, all links to uh, Democracy at Work, their YouTube channel, as well as their Patreon will be in the show notes uh, for anybody who wants to look into that further. And with that said, um, we can have, I guess, just a few questions um, to, to, to pick uh, at uh, the professor's brain, if he allows us. Um, <laughs> and uh, the very first thing that we'd like to, to, to jump into is something very relevant, particularly to our American audience, which is that uh, inflation is currently increasing at a rate faster than what we've seen in quite a long time, particularly for the United States, and it's beginning to eat through what little most Americans have uh, saved up. Uh, Professor, in your opinion, what are the major reasons for this cr- happening right now, and what would a socialist approach towards inflation of this form be? Had it, uh, uh, had we had the opportunity to live within the uh, formula- socialist formulation that you uh, like to uh, promote?
1: Okay. Um, in order to answer the question, the part of the question that is uh, concerns the causes uh, of this inflation. Uh, let me say a few things. Number one, it is uh, the worst level of inflation that we have seen in about 40 years here in the United States. Uh, so that's a long time. Um, during that time, prices were relatively stable. Um, they ro- if they rose, which they did, they rose moderately between zero and 2% per year, more or less. Um, and that was what it's supposed to be. That is what capitalism is supposed to work like. The central banks of capitalist countries, in, in the United States it's called the Federal Reserve, have as their charge what they're supposed to do, and I'll quote, is, quote, maintain price stability. So one of the first things to say about the current inflation uh, is that it represents a failure of the single most important institution that is designed to achieve the price stability we now do not have. And I stress that because it was a mystery to many people why we didn't have an inflation earlier, uh, the Federal Reserve took credit for that, even though few who follow it uh, were prepared to give them as much credit as they wanted to get. Uh, when this inflation started, and that was about a year ago or a little bit more than that, the Federal Reserve finally took note of it, but assured us in repeated statements that it was, quote unquote, temporary, which it isn't and, quote-unquote, small or mild or shallow. And it isn't that either. It's currently Zooming. It's been going on and actually getting worse for a full year now, uh, with no end in sight. It's neither temporary nor shallow. Uh, This is a record of failure. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the system's failure is what we're looking at when we look at an inflation like this. Well, why is that? Because the inflation has all kinds of effects that are very dangerous and problematic for a capitalist system. I'm going to only mention a few. Typically in inflations, and certainly in this one, prices rise faster than wages. And what, and by the way, in this country, United States right now, the inflation rate is more than double the average rate of price, uh, wage increases, which means that even if you're lucky enough uh, to be a worker who gets the average annual rate of increase, roughly 4% now, it still means you're falling behind because an extra 4% will not allow you to afford paying the extra 8% that your groceries and your uh, laundry and other expenses uh, will require. So this is, and there's no other way to put it, a direct attack and damage to the working class uh, of a capitalist economy. But the damage it does uh, goes beyond that, well beyond that. Here's another example. The United States, more than ever in its history, depends on exporting goods and services. If inflation happens here the way it is, it means that the prices of our exports are going up. And that is driving the buyers of those exports, both abroad and here uh, in the United States, in a way I'll get to in a minute, to look elsewhere. In other words, to stop buying American goods because they're becoming more expensive and shift over uh, to other countries' goods, which for the United States producer is bad news. Uh, But since rising prices at home uh, make life hard for American workers, rising prices cutting off foreign buyers mean that jobs in the United States producing exports will be cut back, Uh, it's already happening, uh, as business is lost for American producers around the world. And finally, one more dimension. If prices rise here as they are currently, if wages rise here as they are currently, A capitalist employer has that much greater reason to leave the United States and move to parts of the world where wages are not rising, or at least not as fast, where prices are not rising, at least not as fast, because that will give them a competitive advantage over enterprises stuck here in the United States. So for example, the rate of uh, inflation, the general rate of inflation in China and Japan right now is in the neighborhood of 2%. The rate of inflation in the United States is between 8 and 9% official. That's more than a big enough difference to make decisions about leaving the United States, relocating a uh, production in China Or Japan or other countries where inflation is less. As I say, I could go on, but these are more than enough to put the pressure which you might have seen showing up in the desperate effort of President Biden speaking, I believe, today in front of the AFL CIO labor union convention, laying out a plan, he calls it, to deal with inflation. I'll have something to say about that in a minute. Uh, But it's an attack on jobs. It's an attack on workers' standard of living. It's bad for the American economy. Is there anyone for whom it is good? And the answer is yes. And it should come to you as no big surprise. The people best positioned to benefit from an inflation or whatever groups of people are in a position to raise the prices of what they sell as fast or faster than the rate of inflation. In other words, uh, let me give you an example. Um, If the price of cotton goes up by 10% uh, and you're a producer who buys cotton as an input, it's going to hurt you to have to pay 10% more, but you could recoup your loss or even turn your loss into a gain if you were able to raise the price of whatever you make with the cotton by at least 10%, or you'd be even better off if you could raise it by 12 or 15%. In other words, capitalists, because they are the determiners of prices of what they sell in a way that employees never are, capitalists can offset rising costs by raising their prices, or at least they can try to do that. For most of us as employees, we're not in a position to do that. If we are unionized, we typically have a contract that provides what our wages are for two or three years, so we're not in a position to break that contract. If we're not unionized, it usually means we're not well enough organized to force the employer to give us a wage just because all the prices we pay in the supermarket and elsewhere Have gone up. So built in to most inflations is a kind of situation in which capitalists, at the very least, have a much better chance to play the inflation, to minimize its costs, and to take advantage uh, of its opportunities. And so, for example, and here we go now, one of the reasons inflation is now happening at an accelerating rate and happening at a high rate, eight and a half percent per year is high, is it because the inflation feeds on itself. In other words, capitalists can raise the price, which in most cases they are hesitant to do, because if you raise your price, you are of course giving an incentive To whoever buys what you sell to economize, to go get it somewhere else, to shift to a lower cost producer, to postpone a purchase. So, capitalists are hesitant to raise prices. uh, And if they do so, they are very sensitive to being blamed for it. So, it's very helpful to be able to say, as virtually all of them are doing now. Oh, I don't want to raise my prices. Oh, I understand your are upset, but what am I to do? All my costs have gone up. Quite typically, here in the United States, for the last six months, many, many uh, capitalists and the politicians that they own have been saying prices are going up because the cost of labor is going up. That's why you hear this nonsense about labor shortage. To talk about a labor shortage is to then lay the groundwork for saying, well, we have to pay the workers more because there's a shortage. And now that we've had to pay the workers more, well, of course, we have to raise our prices. This is a lovely way to shift the blame. Capitalists want the benefit of raising prices without the cost, without the lost business, without the bad publicity. And so blaming someone or blaming something is very popular. I might mention here the mystical way this happens. And nothing is more common than the mysteries these days, which come out of the mouths of CEOs who will tell you that the inflation in general or the price increases they have chosen to make for whatever they produce and sell have been caused by, and here it comes, supply chain disruptions. At this point, professional economists like me have to grit our teeth and explain what complete nonsense this is. Every production line, every producer of a good and service is always aware that he or she or they have to purchase inputs if you make ladders well you got to get uh, lumber and you got to get nails and you have to get tools and what if you're a barber shop if you're an automobile factory it doesn't matter you have to get inputs Those are called supplies, and those you get where? Well, if you're smart, you try to get them where the price is the lowest and the quality is the best, and so you look around. Maybe you look six miles around you. If you can't find what you need, 12 miles around you, and keep going, and eventually you might do what American companies have done now more and more in the last 40 years, go far afield to Asia, Africa, Latin America, finding high-quality, low-price inputs. But of course, the further you go, here we go now, the longer your supply chain. And all that means is that the inputs you're buying for your profitable activity, have to come for a longer distance. Every capitalist has known for at least the last three centuries that if you have a supply chain, long distance, medium distance, short distance, you are always going to have disruptions. There's going to be a rainstorm. There's going to be a strike of workers. There's going to be uh, political unrest. There's going to be a war. There's going to be political changes that affect things. Roads are going to be built over here. Transportation technology is going to change. It's just going to be constant. And what every capitalist has done, the minute they get big enough, is they've set aside a group of people in every business, usually called the purchasing department or the purchasing managers. And you know what their job is? To study and anticipate and plan for, you guessed it, supply chain disruptions. And how do you do that? You make sure that if You're dependent on anyone for a big portion of an input. You have an alternative to go to if there's a disruption from the one you normally rely on. You keep an inventory in case you can't quickly find a substitute provider. You stockpile whatever is crucial so that you can get through the disruptions. Every producer has disruptions and every producer has ways to solve them. So to suddenly say, gee, we're having disruptions is somewhere between spectacularly ignorant or just the truth of it, BS, designed to point the finger of blame anywhere but at the capitalists who either didn't anticipate or didn't prepare for or didn't work around the disruptions that they have been preparing for and working around, as I say, for centuries. It is total nonsense. If in fact, we are in a situation where disruptions are happening left and right across this industry and that one, when we have such a vast array of simultaneous disruptions, then what we have is a system problem, not a supply chain problem, because that would be the individual event. And so when they tell you, gee, a freighter got stuck in the Suez Canal, or "G, Chinese cities are subjecting their citizens to COVID testing instead of having them go to work, you're not looking anymore at this or that. To have a general inflation and to blame supply chain is a kind of bizarre admission without ever using the words that the system itself is busted. And that is, in fact, the truth. The real cause, the immediate cause of all inflations, should never be forgotten. Prices are set by employers not by employees anyone who's ever been an employee anywhere will have noticed that one of the things employees job descriptions never include is setting the price of whatever it is the employees help to produce that is the exclusive privilege and responsibility of the employer So let's be real clear. An inflation is when employers choose to raise prices. Employers are never more than one, maybe one and a half percent of a country's population. Employees are always the vast majority. So let's be clear. Inflations are when a tiny minority impose a change on a vast majority and doing so has been done by excluding the vast majority from any say in the matter. And it is a wonderful demonstration how in the heart of the capitalist economy, something exists that is not only undemocratic, but is the exact opposite of democracy
2: thank you that was a perfect overview uh i guess of how inflation the ine- inevitable product of capitalism hits the economy on a micro scale as well as its you know relationship to the employee employer relationship so uh let's let's now try to make it as relevant for the daily lives of everyone listening so Tell us, Dr. Wolf, how is what's going on going to hit the arguably most important pillars of every family stability, you know, housing, employment, buying power, and so on. Let's uh, try to help people plan for the next few years as adequately as possible. I know I am trying to. It's like, uh, should you save now? Should you buy a flat? Should you get a loan? Should you wait? Uh, There's literally no information out there from a Marxist perspective, just usually people throwing day trading courses at you. So please, Dr. Wolf, uh, let's hear it.
1: Okay. Um, The first thing and the most important is to recognize that no one knows the future. I am not going to tell you something. I am not going to play some scam on you. Do this, do that, as if I knew. If you encounter someone, at least I know this for economics, but I suspect it's true across the board. But in economics, if you encounter somebody who says, I know what's going to happen three, six, 12, 18 months from now, my advice for you is to find someone else to talk to. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I will make no pretense that I can do that. Here is the help I think I can give you. Uh, And I'll do it in the form of a story or two. I'm a product of the elite universities here of the United States. Uh, I was a classmate uh, when I went to graduate school uh, at Yale in economics. I was a classmate of Janet Yellen, who's the uh, Treasury Secretary under Biden at this point. I know exactly what she learned. I know what books she read. I know who her teachers were, because mine were exactly the same at the same time. Uh, So I know kind of who these people are and how they think. And some of them have remained my friends, because we were graduate students together. And here's the remarkable thing that has happened, which does answer your question, at least in part. We do not agree amongst us as to how we got in to the economic situation that we're in now. And we do not agree on how to get out of it. But we do agree on something that we were all surprised to learn we agreed on. Namely, and I quote you now, this is the worst condition of the American economy in our lifetimes and i have gray hair so my lifetime's pretty long one at this point you don't look my first okay my (laughs) first advice would be be extremely cautious because we are in uncharted territory and even the little rules of thumb of what you should do from the past absolutely do not apply under the current situations too many things are drastically different, and I, rather than than go through a catalog, let me mention some of the differences because your guess and the guess of the people listening to the program uh, is as good as anybody else's as to where all of this leads. Okay, for the last century. Here's the first for the last century the dominant economic player in the world has been the United States. It came originally as a small, unimportant colony of the British, the mighty British Empire. Uh, It fought a violent war to separate itself from the British Empire. And across the um, 19th century, it grew to challenge the British Empire and to destroy the two other challengers to the British Empire, which were the rising German capitalist system and the rising Japanese capitalist system. The German system was defeated in the two worst world wars humanity has ever seen. And indeed, in the Second World War, uh, the Japanese were brought in and they were defeated. So that the United States, particularly in the 75 years since World War II, but I also would go back further to say that basically World War I 1920, a century ago, was the time when the United States pushed aside the old British empire and became the dominant new empire of the world. And it proceeded to build an American empire. For historical reasons, it didn't call it that, but for all practical purposes, that's what it was. And this was very profitable to do. Much of the groundwork for the American empire had been done at the expense of the British and their empire. The United States was therefore able to take over the um, the, uh, former colonial relationships that the British had, that the French had, and so on, and systematically displace and replace them. And that meant economic growth, economic expansion, and Americans became used to that, used to having higher wages, used to having higher economic growth, used to having an absolutely dominant position in world trade, in world finance, in world employment, in world production. rising standard of living could be given to a working class even as profits grew faster. It was a remarkable ride up for the U.S. economy. But now here comes the implication of my story. That ride stopped at the end of the 20th century. It got in almost a hundred years, but it is now over. And the American people have not yet come to terms with that. It's too difficult. If you want to understand it, you have to study Britain for a while. Large numbers of people in the United Kingdom still can't figure out that there is no British Empire anymore and that they have become what they originally were, a small, wet, cold island off the mainland of Europe. The United States is now struggling poorly with the fact that its empire is over. Capitalism created the British Empire. Capitalism is what enabled the United States to break away from the British Empire. Capitalism is what moved from the English origin it had back in the 18th 17th and 18th century, spreading to Western Europe, spreading to North America, spreading to Japan, and to eventually the world. And it spread following its own dictates, which are to go where the profit is, where the wages are low, where the demand for goods and services is rising, where the market opportunities are greatest. So capitalism made England the empire, then it moved and made the United States the empire. It moved to Germany and Japan, but they could not work out a deal. So they went to war against each other, which they are doing again. Meanwhile, capitalism fooled them all and moved once again. And it has moved since, To China, India, Brazil, and all of that. So that for the first time in a century, the United States has a very serious economic competitor. We have not had, we, I speak as an American, we have not had such a competitor for a century. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to understand it. We don't know how to develop a policy for it. We are casting about with varying degrees of desperation, wondering whether to use economic weapons or military weapons or no weapons to try to manage a situation for which we have neither the tools nor the understanding uh, nor much of a of a hopeful prospect. Very, very difficult situation. The Chinese are crucial. Let me give you an idea of how to keep this in mind. I'm going to compare the GDP, the gross domestic product, of three countries. Russia, China, and the United States. The GDP of Russia, most recent year that I have data, $1.5 trillion. The GDP of the United States, most recent year, $21 trillion. The struggle between Russia and the United States puts against each other utterly unequal combatants. The Soviet Union was never an economic competitor of the United States, it never came close, and the same is true for Russia. The GDP of China is currently about 15 trillion dollars still a good bit smaller than the US, but catching up fast and immensely larger than that of its ally, Russia. You must keep these relative sizes of the economy in your mind so you don't get distracted by noisy interpretations that are completely unrealistic because they're not grounded in some sense of the economic capabilities, strengths, and so on. By the way, the Ukraine is in the same relationship to Russia as Russia is, I mean, roughly speaking, to the United States. So, I mean, these are struggles of vastly unequal combatants, and the outcomes are the logical result of all of that. Therefore, Americans are in a new situation, and giving them advice would be very difficult. If I had listened to the Federal Reserve a year ago, I didn't, but if I had, I could have given advice, don't worry about the inflation. That would have been the wrong advice. I cannot now tell you, nobody can, how long this inflation will last, how bad it will get. And because I can't tell you that, I also cannot tell you what might happen in response to an inflation that kept getting worse and was lasting. At this point, most observers of American politics believe that the inflation will cause the Democrats to lose power in in the House and the Senate, and render Mr. Biden unable to do very much, Uh, not that he did all that much the first two years, but he'll do a lot less in the second two, because he's gonna lose these elections. And you're going to have all kinds of people, uh, political leaders, with very different ideas. Republicans, remember, uh, love Russia and hate China. Democrats hate Russia and ambivalent about China. Who knows how this is going to play out? Who knows what consequences flow? Nobody. And again, predicting is very, very hard to do. I would tell you that the uncertainty itself means that if I were to give advice, it would be be more cautious, than ever. Do not lock yourself into deals or contracts or commitments uh, that could become very difficult to fulfill, given all the uncertainty about where things are going. The American capitalist class, the people that run the country, have been so comfortable for so long In the inequality of this system, which has gotten markedly worse over the last 40 years. They have not reacted to it getting worse by anything approaching worrying about it. They talk about it, but they don't do anything. The tax system is not adjusted to offset the inequality. Neither is the wage system. Neither is the price system it's as if those at the top basically believe that you can do way worse to the American working class before you face any danger from it at all. And I can illustrate it, if you're interested in the the inflation, and obviously if I'm talking too continuously, please break in, I will not mind at all. No, no, it's
2: perfect. It's perfect. Please continue. The
1: the, the way you can see it is, let me give you an, two examples. I'll just pick two from American history of how the problem of inflation was handled differently, even within American capitalism, when it was under different conditions. The first example comes from World War II. It's early in the 1940s. President is a Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, and he is approached by his economic advisors, some of whom later became my teachers, and he is told the following. We are now going to be diverting in our country a huge amount of our resources away from producing consumer goods and producing instead war material, because we're fighting World War II against the Germans, the Japanese, the Italians, and so on. And we have to produce the planes, the ships, the guns, uh, the rockets and everything for everybody. And therefore we know that there's going to be a fairly drastic drop in the quantity of consumer goods, that our economy can generate. There will be shortages, compared to what we have now, of meat, and sugar, and coffee, and gasoline, and a whole bunch of other things. So we're telling you, Mr. President, that there are two ways to handle it. You can let the market decide. And what will happen then is the following. As these shortages begin to show up, the gas stations don't have gas, the supermarkets don't have coffee or sugar or flour or whatever, rich people are going to start bidding to higher prices to get what is in short supply. And the gas station is going to say, well, I couldn't be fair and give it first come first serve, but I won't get anyone near as much money then as if I say, well, how much is it worth to you? And then I discover that some people are willing to pay three times what the other people are willing to pay so I can let the price go up it'll eventually be unaffordable to middle and low-income people, and I'll sell the, the, the coffee, or the sugar, or the gasoline, or whatever at the higher price, which is good for me as a storekeeper, and it'll go to the richest person. Well, the advisors were asked by Roosevelt, is that what we should do? And the advisors, at least those that I know, said to him, you would be crazy to do that. Because if you allow that to happen, middle and low income people who are the vast majority in this country will be angry and bitter and rageful, probably against the rich. Because you're going to have to see a family rich enough to buy scarce milk, which they give to their cat, Whereas the family with five babies to to feed cannot get milk for the children. This is going to produce horrible divisions. And if you're going to fight a war, the last thing on earth you can risk is a divided population at home. So we advise you not to use the market. Roosevelt went with that advice to avoid an inflation, which is what would have happened if they'd let the market work, given that the demand for consumer goods was the same, but it was the supply that was being constricted because of war. What they did instead is they published ration books, each of which was full of ration stamps. And the stamp said, this stamp entitles whoever has it to a quart of milk. And so you went to the, to the store and you bought the milk. Money alone, you could not get the milk, no matter what you had. Oh, but you needed the stamp. Otherwise the employ- the storekeeper would be arrested if he sold the milk to anybody who didn't have a stamp. The stamps were distributed by the government to families across America according to their needs. In other words, the scarce consumer goods were distributed fairly, not by the market. Wow. Notice here that the notion that the market is what you should defer to was explicitly rejected that the market was seen to be, get ready now, the unfair, unjust institution it has always been. But now you were forced to face it at the highest levels of the government and to act on that basis by removing the market as the mechanism of distribution and replacing it with ration books and tickets and stamps that were distributed to people according to their need. Now, here's the second example. It's 1971, August 15th. The president, Richard M. Nixon, a conservative Republican, There is a rollicking inflation, very bad, worse than what we have now. He goes on radio and television on that day, and he says, I have an announcement for the American people as your president. As of tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, any business in this country that raises the price of anything it sells, we will come, we will arrest you, and we will throw you in jail. You can't do it. Any worker or union that demands or presses for a higher wage, we will do the same. This was called a price-wage freeze. When it was originally announced, it was to last for three months, 90 days. It ended up being extended. It lasted longer than that. It brought the inflation to a screeching halt. Now, I know, in case you do some research, you will discover, so let me save you the trouble, that there were problems and there were difficulties both in the ration system and in the wage price freeze system. But that's not interesting because any policy is full of problems. I just spent time going through with you the problems of letting the inflation go. So there are problems with rationing, and there are problems with wage price freeze, but any honest society would discuss these alternatives, debate them, let the mass of people understand what happens to you in one case or with another. If you really want to stop prices rising, the wage price freeze did that. If you know that there are a mountain of, let's do it, supply chain disruptions, okay, well then, handle it with a ration system or a wage price fee. All of this is possible, and I would think it'd be easy to show the American working class that they have much less to lose and much more to gain with a wage price freeze imposed by the government, enforced by the government, ditto a rationing system, then allowing the inflation basically to shift the standard of living down for the middle and the low while it is maintained for those at the top. The richest 10% of Americans are not affected significantly by the inflation. And they will not be affected much by rising interest rates as those are boosted up by the Federal Reserve. Indeed, I believe they did it today. Um, Big corporations have many ways of getting around the rising interest rates and offsetting the rising prices of their inputs by jacking up the prices. Of their outputs. It's the working class that has the least flexibility and capability of offsetting the rising prices, literally pulling money out of their pockets. They have very few recourses to do much about it. So the question is, especially in a country like this, where there is no political vehicle for the mass of people to express their difference, their hostility. I want to point out that Mr. Biden reappointed Mr. Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve. Mr. Biden has said over and over again, raising interest rates is what has to happen, and he's happy to let Mr. Powell, a Republican at the Federal Reserve, handle that. In other words, the two major political parties on these key capitalist economy issues are indistinguishable one from the other. Same policy, same assessment, same total silence on what a Republican President Nixon and a Democratic President uh, Roosevelt actually did on the issue of inflation. It is a stunning example of a distorted politics, utterly incapable of dealing with the situation in a rational manner. And that may be the most important thing for people to understand. We are in an economy and a society that is traumatized by the end of its own empire. We lost the war in Afghanistan. We lost the war in Iraq. We lost the war in Vietnam. We aren't going to win in Ukraine either. These are realities there is no way to fake your way out of, and the economic downturn is beginning to shake The politics took a long time. But if I could, let me end by making sure you pay some attention, if you haven't already, and that the listeners to this program do, to an extraordinary election that happened in France last Sunday, June 12th. A unified left comprising the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the Green Party, and a very large independent left-wing political cohort. They all got together, and in the voting, that unified left got the same number of votes as the sitting President Macron and his party. They were separated by less than one-tenth of one percent. French politics is transformed by an awakened left. It started with the yellow vests several years ago, and now it is showing up in the political party realm. This will change politics across Europe and beyond. These are the signs I would urge people to look at for what's coming. But beyond that, specific predictions are worth less now than ever. Very well said. I, I think
3: it's an exceptionally important point that you made that we are in uncharted territory here in the U.S., but that we can look to previous empires in decline to kind of more or less project how our own decline might play out. Uh, as the expression goes, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Yes. Um, I'd like to change gears a little bit here and and talk about how we can discuss economic realities uh, with our peers. Because if we're being honest, most people, myself included, uh, have a very poor understanding of economics. Um, It's easy for defenders of capitalism to parrot the talking points we've all grown up hearing, but it's more difficult for opponents of the system to refute those arguments in a succinct manner. Uh, even those socialists with a solid grasp on the failures of capitalist economics will run into the problem of people just losing interest in their explanations because they're too long or too boring or whatever. So in your experience, what are the most succinct arguments for socialist economics to plant that first seed of doubt in the mind of the average person?
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, Before I answer, let me me make sure something – well, at least let me um, – argue something for you. Um, As old as capitalism is the critique of capitalism, and that's not unique to capitalism. As old as feudalism was before it, there were feudalism's victims and feudalism's critics. And that's true of the slavery systems, of ancient village systems, you name it. So Economic systems produce people who love them and people who hate them, number one. Number two, sooner or later, the critics make some sort of alliance, let's call it for lack of something better, with the victims. It's a kind of natural alliance because the critics begin to realize that they share something with the victims, namely a desire to see the system they don't, excuse me, they don't like, uh, pass into one they would prefer. And the victims are drawn into the same project. They are victimized by whatever exists, and so they are interested in and open uh, to maybe going somewhere else. As soon as there are glimpses, early glimpses, Um, of the victims who see a commonality with the critics and the critics who see a commonality with the victims, the question becomes, how do we build on this commonality? How do we organize effectively to bring the change about? And this has been going on for centuries. I mean, this is an indirect way of my saying the question you're asking Is a question that has been asked over and over and over about every system, but includes capitalism. And I want to tell you that whatever skill I bring to this, uh, because I'm engaged in this activity, I'm happy that there are critics of capitalism. They have taught me. I'm happy that there are victims. I mean, I'm sorry for their victimization, but I'm happy that they're there because they are my target audience in many ways. Uh, for me, I began to try to answer the question you pose, how can I best share with other critics, like myself, with victims of this system, in which I include myself as well? How can I share with them my understanding in a way that allows us to approach everybody who's open to talk about it, to see if I can win over, if I can persuade others. That led me, because of who I am and my history, to end up discovering, um, as a high school student and a college student, the works of Marx. So I have to answer your question in part, with what may frustrate you, which is that was, and that remains absolutely the richest source of answers to your question that exists. And by that, I don't just mean Marx's works that he or he and his buddy Engels wrote while they were alive. I'm talking about the whole Marxist tradition The people who come long after Marx is dead, but work with his writings, work with his ideas, extend them, debate them, criticize some of them, um, develop alternatives, but react to and understand themselves to be part of, of this project, which I call doing better than capitalism. So I would urge people, do that. And why? Because the little remarks that you talked about, the thing you can say to your roommate, to your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your, your, your cousin, your classmate, whatever, the, those things are dependent on the immediate situation you're in, the immediate events that shake your lives, Uh, the other aspects of your relationships with the people you encounter. So you're going to have to adapt a certain body of criticism to come up with a clever remark, with a short pamphlet, with the remarkable song, or whatever form your contribution takes. But you can train yourself in how to do that particularly effective thing by really learning the critique. And by now, the critique is really well-developed. There are even multiple different interpretations that you need to wrestle with. You'll end up finding one persuasive and the other one not, or mixing them in particular ways. But that's fine. That's what should happen. Because you, whether you're aware of it or not, you will always be struggling between the core analytic you're trying to master and the application or translation of that analysis into the action, the the words on a flyer, the design of a headline, uh, the text of a poem or whatever the form is in which you do it. I have found for me, that the classroom, and in my case, the classroom in economics turned out to be a magnificent place for me. I didn't know that when I started out. Otherwise, I might have ended up somewhere else. But it turned out that in the economics classroom, I was confronted with what you, as you put it, you know, what everybody has grown up in, the the kind of ideas that rationalize and justify capitalism uh, to those of us that grow up in a capitalist system. I was born and I've lived and worked all my life here in the United States. So I'm aware of of how um, pro-capitalist ideas saturate our our lives. So the students keep coming with them because that's what they've learned just like I did. So I began to realize, oh, I've got to be able to undo this piece of miseducation or that piece. And I have to come up with a clever example. I have to be able to tell a story. I have to be able to assemble some statistics that undo all of that. And along the way, I discovered something which may be of use to you. And that is the following economics is a victim as a as a field is a victim of capitalism which may be, strike you as ironic because obviously modern economics is the product of capitalism and tries very hard to rationalize and celebrate and praise capitalism all of which is true on the other hand It has been turned over to specialists. And in capitalist system, specialists quickly understand that the way you navigate a capitalist system is you write what you do in a very arcane language that nobody understands. You then persuade them that what you know, your economics, is very, very important. And so they should pay you well to translate the weird language into which you have translated economic ideas back into the simple ideas they always were. You will get paid for that. And you'll get paid well. And the result is that economics is an impenetrable jungle Of abstract, weird formulations. The best way to understand it is to see that in doing this, economists understood and reproduced what lawyers do. Lawyers take a simple problem. I took your dog and I took it over to my house and I'm now acting like it's my dog. And you come over to my house and say, wait a minute, That's not your dog. That's my dog. We now have a conflict. Each of us now has to go buy a lawyer, pay the lawyer a shitload of money in order to go to court and go through a whole rigmarole to try to sort out who gets the dog. Now, one of us will. The other one won't. We knew that at the beginning. But both of us had to pay lawyers lots of money. To come up with translations of the law back into the common sense idea that the judge will then use to decide you get the dog or I get the dog. Economics is the same. It becomes impenetrable. The most frequent remark I heard from economics students at Yale University, at the City University of New York, at the University of Massachusetts, and now at the New School University in New York City, because I still teach and I've taught at all those places. The most common remark, why is this so complicated? Why is this so boring? Why?" And you know, it isn't that complicated, and it isn't that boring. Economics is about issues you deal with every day of your life. You have no choice. Your parents do. Your boyfriend and your girlfriend do, your friends do, you do. And the ideas of economics are very simple. But we have produced, and here's the punchline, we have produced a stunning level of economic illiteracy in the United States. And that became my best ally. I began to understand that the best way for me to gain a hearing from people for my radical economics ideas was to help them understand what in the world is going on, because no one ever did. Whether they majored in economics, whether they ever took a course in economics, whether their high school ever taught them anything or not, they were completely out of the loop. They didn't understand, they didn't know what the Federal Reserve is, or does, or what difference it makes. Those little snippets at the end of the news broadcast, interest rates today broke the barrier and went from two and a half, the vast majority of them had the faintest idea what this all means. And the announcer never explains it, by the way, because they don't get it either. They simply read the press release and both the announcer and the audience pretend that they know what that all means. They don't. So here's my advice. Learn the economics so you can teach it because it's your ticket to a relationship with your audience Whether it's one person uh, at the coffee shop that you're just talking to or an audience of thousands uh, that you may have a chance to address because of what you achieve in your life, it doesn't matter. The more you can explain what's happening to people who, who I can assure you, are very anxious to understand. They don't want to be told they're stupid. They don't want to be talked down to, but they really would like to understand. You know, it's like the famous man who's lost in his car, but can't bring himself to ask for directions. He's so appreciative when someone sticks their head in the window and says, hey, mate, can I give you a hand? You're looking for, oh yeah, I'm looking for, oh, thanks. That's your role. You're the guy who sticks his head in there and says, you know, this is what's going on, and here is what it means. If you give them the what is going on answer, they will listen to you when you would tell them what it means.
3: I think that's a brilliant response and one that we should really all try to keep in mind. There's no magic bullet, and if there were, we'd all know it, and capitalism would be a thing of the past. It's our responsibility to work towards educating both ourselves and others, even if that isn't always as easy as repeating pithy one-liners. I'd like to move on now to our last question for today, and thank you for being here again. There's a common expression that the average person is three missed meals away from revolution. With the recent, as you've stated, supply chain issues and the U.S. empire losing its grip on the global south... Do you foresee increased social unrest as things we've previously taken for granted, like food and cheap gas, become increasingly unaffordable? Or are Americans simply too overcome by decades of inertia to get up the willpower and class consciousness to do
1: something? Well, that's the great question. I wish I knew the answer. I don't. I don't think anyone does. Um, I do think you cannot, you cannot keep going in the direction that we are going. And I see a system that is unable to recognize that, unable to come to terms with it, and certainly unable to do anything about it. I mean, if you look at the Democratic Party, it seems to be a political movement that thinks, as it says, it wants to get back to the way things were before the pandemic. Well, the way things were before the pandemic is what led up to the fact that we failed to deal with the pandemic, that we failed to deal with the economic crash that followed it, we failed to deal with the inflation now roiling it. I mean, to put us back on the road to the failure is really a weird program, and but yet that is their program and that is what they are trying to do. On the other hand, the Republicans are doing well because they're at least able to say everything is in terrible shape. That fits better with the mass of the working class, which is why that mass of the working class is split between the Democrats, who will give them a little something, but don't sound like they understand half of what's going on, and the Republicans, who recognize that the things are falling apart, show it in their anger and their remarks. But then the working class says, but where are you going to go? What are you going to do about it? At which point the Republicans can't give an answer because they haven't a clue. And so what they do, the Democrats don't either, but they don't think it's a problem. The Republicans come up with scapegoating. That, By the way, very common in, in human history. They come up with things are really falling apart. The country's falling So listen to us. And people listen because that vibrates with their own feelings and their own thoughts. And so they say then, here it is. Here's the problem. It's these desperately poor people from Central America that are coming across our borders in uh, Texas and Arizona. Uh, This is so dumb and so weird and so off the chart that... it won't get much further than what it has gotten, which is bad enough, but it's a good scapegoat. Here's another one. Foreigners, because this is like the immigrant, there's a foreigner too, but now the foreigner are the, the Chinese. You see, they cheat in international trade, says the United States. So let's be real angry at them and hit them with tariffs and trade wars, and we're gonna we're gonna beat the crap out of this. This is all scapegoating. Here's the scary part: there are those on the right who wanna go with this scapegoating several steps further. So, how about we scapegoat the LBG, LBQT, and all of that? Or let's scapegoat trans children and the bathrooms they can or cannot attend I mean stuff gets weirder and weirder but it's understandable because it's hunting for scapegoats listen to Trump the extreme left he has not I mean here's a man who you know really has a hard time distinguishing left from right anyway but he's all clear about a scapegoat someone you can denounce. Uh, as being the bad one, or how does he put it, bad people. Uh, This isn't going to work real well um, either. I think you're seeing a a political system that cannot talk to its people. And that is both a tragedy, but like all tragedies, it's also an opportunity. and let, let me end with this, if I can. The biggest two things that the American left needs is a clear vision of where to go next in general terms, no details. And the second, that's the first thing. And the second thing is organization, unity, bringing people together in organizations that maintain an internal life, that engages people in terms of what they learn and what they can do. The vision has to be some kind of 21st century socialism. The one that I work on with people is the democratization of the enterprise, the transformation of workplaces into democratic collective Worker co ops, whatever you want to call them. Um, that is an image that excites people. That is an image they will allow me to talk about how I, c- I can use it to explain how that will respond to climate disaster, to inequality, to instability. I can do that. They will listen. It will take time, but it is a vision that will attract people. And my assumption is that change will come as the system breaks down. Breaks down ideologically, breaks down politically, economically. I don't know all the ways in which this is going to be done. Nobody does. And there are going to be crises along the way. But if you hold on to the notion we've got to organize people together, this American notion that you can do it by yourself, or that politics is all about your personal witness, as if, you know, God was looking at you every day, and if you just did the right thing politically, God would be pleased, and there's no one else you have to worry about. You've got to put that aside and realize you got to worry about the, this man and that woman and this child and that person. Can you help bring them into organization? If we're organized, we can win. If we're not organized, even if we have a good vision, we will not have the apparatus with which to reach people with it. And for the vision, more than for the organization, you need to spend time studying and learning. I know I'm a professor, and maybe you expect it from me, but I try to say this not as a professor, but read the literature. Have the respect for the Lenins, because I see his picture here, um, for Rosa Luxemburg, for Mao Zedong, for countless others, famous and not, who tried to do in their times and places pretty much what we're trying to do now. They thought about what they were doing. They tried. They made mistakes. They learned from some. They didn't from others. The repository of the notes they kept, the speeches they gave, the books they wrote, these are absolutely golden materials uh, for us to use. When, When Marx writes Capital to explain how and why capitalism is another incarnation, of the horrors of slavery and feudalism, different from them, but also like them. The genius of of having spent a life and figuring that out is stuff we can make use of. And you will do it differently from the way I did it and the way my generation did. And that's as it should be. But the crucial thing is you've got to do it.
0: That was an absolutely brilliant answer. Thank you very much. Um, I uh, agree wholeheartedly, and I think that it's exactly like you said. Um, a uh, honest and thorough uh, approach to the literature is the only thing that allows us to, number one, educate ourselves, and number two, allow us to extend into spheres of organization where we can build this movement rather than just uh, blindly grasping in the dark uh, without reflecting on what issues have already been solved almost a century, and in many cases more than a century uh, ago. Uh, so well, thank you and, for that. And, mm.
1: and review them and debate them and have people argue that it is a solution. It isn't a solution. It did work. It didn't work. Don't be afraid of all of that. Out of that will come all kinds of insights that will not always be consistent one with the other. But you don't have to have that. You have to have the commitment that capitalism's time has come and gone. Um, by the way, you know, I didn't put it this way, but if I had the time, I would talk to you about capitalism not so much coming and going as moving. It left Britain and moved to the United States. It finished with the United States and has gone on to India and China and Brazil. And capitalism can fade in one place and surge in another. That's not unusual. That has been its norm. Capitalism in this country surged in New England, and then it died in New England and moved to the south or the Midwest, and then it went to the southwest. And, you know, and the same is true in England or Europe or everywhere else. It's a dynamic system, um, and defeating it in one place may confront you with the problem that you still face it. In another, um, all of that is going to be played out in this century in any case, and the question is, will there be people like you and me to keep a radical post-capitalist or, or anti-capitalist uh, set of ideas as part of how people think about it? Look, the, one of the reasons the United States kept its power as long as it did is that after World War II, it set around about to squash to eradicate um, the left in this country. Socialists and communists were made pariahs. They were kicked out of newspapers, universities. They were expunged from the system. And much of what's happening now, and that you need to understand if you're in part of the US experience, is that we are now, and this is the first time in 60 years, We're digging out from under all of that squashing. We're reinventing, rediscovering, rebuilding an American left. It's going not so badly, slower than I would wish, but it's happening. And it's the predictable outcome. You can't squash it forever. And as this system has more difficulties, the soil becomes more fertile. So the good news I can give you is that if you're getting interested in this, the audience for it is, is exploding. All I can tell you is I started doing this kind of work about 10 years ago when I stopped being a university professor full-time and started doing this. I never dreamed it would last very long. Um, it's bigger now than it has ever been. We keep growing. You know, I now have a team of 10 people Uh, It's just it's an extraordinary and none of this would happen without the audience, the soil being very fertile for this this kind of analysis.
0: Exactly right. And I think that can lead us into wrapping up uh, for today's episode. Um, and this is uh, a very nice point that you you mentioned is something I think all of us have noticed as well Um, both myself uh, and Yukopnik and uh, JT uh, we've started YouTube channels uh, several years ago and all of us at first saw slow growth that has more or less exploded uh, over the past couple of years and it's very interesting to see that across the world not only in the United States but across the world in various languages and various regions there is a renewed interest in the scientific Marxism tradition is there anything at all that you'd like to shout out to the audience Uh, anything that you'd like to to put out there before we we leave
1: yeah if you're interested in anything of the sort that I have said please make use of our websites I presume you're going to put them up on some screen or some website Mm -hmm. Uh, the main one is democracyatwork.info through that you can follow everything we're doing and be informed of it, our weekly radio and TV show, the videos we produce, the written work, all of it. Perfect, thank you very much, Professor Wall. All right, thank you and goodbye.